There was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen and who feasted luxuriously every day. At his gate lay a certain poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Instead, dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried, to, carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in the place of the dead, he looked up and saw Adam at, at a distance with Lazarus at his side. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm suffering in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted, and you are in great pain. Moreover, a great crevasse has been fixed between us and you. Those who wish to cross over from here to you cannot. Neither can anyone cross from there to us. The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He needs to warn them so that they don't come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will change their hearts and lives. Abraham said, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Word of God for the people of God. So today concludes a short kind of lectionary series of Jesus' teachings to his disciples. And sometimes it's not really clear um, if he's teaching to his disciples in a really loud voice so that other people that are eavesdropping might hear. Um, but he uses these cutting stories to make his point and to open up new worlds of thought where his hearers can actually begin to imagine what the kingdom of God is like, this, this new thing that he manifests and brings. These parables, though, are tough. And I'm not going to stand up here kind of on one leg and try to exhaustively tell you what they mean or how to think. That would kind of violate the main rule of parables. Like parables, I think, are a little like fight club. The first rule is don't talk too much about parables, right? So I will say... And I know that this is a shock to you all, but we've read these, we've read consecutively in Luke's gospel from chapter 14 on to the, now the end of chapter 16. And when you read stories consecutively back to back, it, it makes your eyes open to like deeper themes that are happening rather than if you read them in small like devotional chunks. Like if you just read the story about the prodigal son or the lousy manager, that's great and you'll get a lot from it, but if you read them together, new things open up. New thoughts or old thoughts get rounded out. Uh, some of the territory that we've been trotting on um, uh, starts to illuminate once we get to this difficult story of the rich man and the poor man named Lazarus. So first we're given some of the same language that we've had the last several weeks. A quote, certain man. But in this case, there are two certain men. There is, uh, just like the certain upset and searching father, do you remember at the beginning of Luke 15 it said there was a certain man who had two sons, right? Or the, there was a certain man um, who uh, was the boss of a manager, like, this is repeated language. It's supposed to focus us. Jesus grabs our attention and our mind's eyes should, should lock in. 
these certains become even more key to this story because there's two of them and there's a whole lot going on here. The first certain man, actually, I think that word certain is a um, like direct modifier to say that, that man, but also um, play on words. I think he's kind of certain in his own kind of different way. Like he's very assured in his lifestyle. He's lavish in his clothing and his dining. He's certain about his future. Next, we are presented with another certain man. But his certainty has him locked in a very different reality. He's poor, hungry, stricken, and his future also seems consigned to hang out under the table competing with feral dogs for sustenance. Even they feel sorry for him and tend to his wounds. There's two certain men in the story. And death finds both of them, finds each of them. Death equalizes their lifestyles. Insert like, um, like death like phrase about death and taxes or you can't take it with you to the grave. Ins insert that here, right? Death equalizes their lifestyles. In fact, death flips the script in this story. Death actually privileges Lazarus. Also notice that name, Lazarus. <laughs> and then a third figure is introduced. Father Abraham, and this might seem a little bit random to us, but for a first century Jew, hanging out with Abraham was tantamount to coming home, being with your dad, the underfather of God's people. God the Father, Abraham the other father, right? <laughs> to be with Abraham was to be in God's good graces and vice versa. Notice some of the parables here from weeks past. He looked up and saw Abraham at a distance with Lazarus at his side and shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He, he looked up to the father. <laughs> Does that sound familiar from a couple weeks ago, right? While he was still far away off, the rich man saw the father and asked for mercy. Abraham doesn't exactly respond the way uh, the father in the prodigal story did, though. There's no robe or ring or shoes waiting here. This man's already worn them in this life. It seems the young goat has already been consumed by the rich man in this life. There's none left for him in the life to come. There will be no feast. This is a nightmare story, right? Especially for those of us who have much. Most of us who have much. For him, this is almost like like a Dickens tale. This is like the ghost of Hanukkah future, right, for him? Like there won't be enough because there's already been too much. That's how eye-opening this story is that Jesus is telling. This is, uh, on a more personal basis, this is like the look of horror writ large that my kids have <laughs> when they want a sweet treat, like a dessert after dinner, and then you remind them that they chose some mediocre treat during the day rather than holding out for the true dessert that night, and then they're stuck, and they realize they've made the wrong choice. <laughs> a little bigger scale here, I'm sure. You may be sitting there wondering about like the sort of world that Jesus is living in that he could tell this story, that, like what Jesus' cosmology holds 
or at least that his hearers hold, that has him telling a story featuring apparent eternal conscious torment. Like this guy saying, this is so bad, just let Lazarus dip his finger in cold water to relieve me. Uh, if it helped, like it didn't sound too Jesus-y to us that it would be that bad. But if it helps, imagine this kind of in an anachronism, something that couldn't have happened then. <laughs> that perhaps it was always that bad, it was always that hot, but the rich man just never felt it because he was always holed up in the AC, right? He's only now starting to feel how it already all, always was. And Lazarus instead had always had maximum exposure to that sort of crushing heat, even like subdermally, even under his skin. He had felt it in his open sores. And now they're still both experiencing the same conditions, only now the rich man is waking up to reality. What if that's what's going on here? Lazarus, Lazarus is finally getting relief. The rich man is finally experiencing reality. Abraham explains along these lines. Abraham says, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted, and you are in great pain. So what in the world is this parable getting at? Like, for one, let's take it seriously that it means what it says, but, like... Last week, I want to provide a few avenues of pursuit and inquiry so that you can walk on this on your own. I hope this isn't the last time in the next seven days that you read this parable. Hopefully, maybe read it every day and see what opens up for you. It's meant to continue to open up the story rather than to close it down, to open up our responses. So you should be able to read this parable for the rest of your life and never come to the end of it. But you should also be able to read it today and hear something of consequence. So first off, here's a few things that I've noticed about this and maybe some avenues of pursuit. First off, Jesus' teaching here calls us to a ministry of noticing. A ministry of noticing. To me, it's a pretty damning thing for this rich man, and it's a pretty damning thing for me as like a rich-ish man, <laughs> that this whole world was happening on his doorstep that he never saw, right? While this certain man was busy getting dressed and going to parties and eating delicious food, he was stepping over someone in his own doorway who was hurting. Didn't even notice him. It's only when the tables are turned completely over <laughs> that he notices this man as more than an inconvenience or more than just someone who's grubbing for handouts. This unnamed rich man might have known his name more from infamy than from friendship. They were not peers, right? This is a hard word for us. This is a hard word um, even for those of us who are only in a place for a short amount of time, but even when you're in any place for any period of time, you start having to reckon with those neighbors who you always see and they always seem like they need something, or those coworkers, or those people in your family that you're never going to get rid of, right? You, you have the chance and the choice to notice these people or to screen them out. You can continue to see them or you can be blind to their presence. I always think of the end of that Gerard Manley Hopkins poem, Kingfisher, Kingfisher's Catch Fire, and he writes, 
I say more, the just man justices, just people do just things, right? Keeps grace that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ, for Christ plays in 10,000 places. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. That means that Christ plays in 10,000 places and in all these faces where we wouldn't expect Christ to be, Christ shows up. So we better get used to noticing. Built into this ministry of noticing is the tricky expectation that Christ is already there. Even in the faces we try not to make eye contact with. If you've been in Durham long, long enough and you drive the same routes long enough, you have like your favorite person at the intersection that you try not to notice that they're there, right? These are the faces that I'm talking about. Or, you know, we just sang today, you make all things new in places we don't choose. <laughs> it, that beckons us, that calls us to this ministry of noticing. The calling and the challenge is to continue to see those people in those places as sites of dignity and as potentials for God's presence and action. Right here, already. Last night, uh, I got to go to a really special dinner kind of at the last minute, and I saw Elizabeth and Brian and uh, Elizabeth's parents there, Carl and Colleen, and it was for the 30th anniversary celebration for a ministry called Questscope. Has anyone heard of Questscope? Raise your hand if you're not a Christian sin and you've heard of Questscope. Yeah. Basically, 30 years ago, a like do-gooder American professor in Jordan noticed a strange gap like a great chasm that was fixed in the Jordanian education system. And this gap, this chasm, was swallowing young men and women alive. Instead of just considering the way things are and the way they must be, this guy Kurt Rhodes noticed that individual boys and girls that he was talking to, who for whatever reason skipped out of the system, uh, either through hardship or poverty or they had to work or um, some other reason, if they skipped out at the wrong time and for the wrong amount of time, they couldn't get back in. It was illegal to get back into the system after you'd been gone for several years. If you didn't finish sixth grade, you, you couldn't take an equivalency to finish 10th grade. And if you didn't finish 10th grade, there, there were so many things closed off to you. And, and this is really troubling for an American for whom these things are incredibly unjust, right? Um, it, but instead of Instead of uh, figuring that this was how it was, uh, the laws were drawn that way and the future was predetermined, uh, instead of continuing to do the things that you do to get the things that you always get, um, Kurt Rhodes uh, developed and found a team there that would help fix this and annoyed a lot of people into making a lot of things happen. 30 years later, they tell stories of changing the landscape in the Middle East educational system. They're doing this for millions of people with support from UNICEF and the EU and Jordan's Department of Education because they're doing things better than they, the government can do for themselves and they're including locals through and through like in the whole organization. They're forming, a, forming and mobilizing a local team of thousands of staff and volunteers. And this, as I'm telling you, this probably appeals to our uh, great joy as mostly white Westerners that we can do great things with our great knowledge, skills, and resources. 
no doubt they are doing and have done great things, but it all started with noticing. Just being bothered and noticing why are these kids around and why can't they get back into a system that they want to be in and are willing to do the work for. Kurtz didn't diagnose a problem, but by his own admission, the secret sauce is what he called it last night of Questcope, was recognizing that each of these children has a soul and they need to be ministered to on this soul level and their whole being needs to be cultivated as a present and future gift. To miss out on that or to smooth it over into just stats to kind of get, get fundraising money kind of makes their tagline is to make, uh, to keep the last first or um, to, to have the last be first. And to, to just smooth these people out into a number, it makes the last a priority, but it'll never make them first the way putting, putting them uh, in, as individual people in front and keeping them in the front of, of their mission and their vision does. That, that ministry last night as they presented it and they celebrated what they've learned over these 30 years, I, I couldn't help but think that they were seeing Christ play lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, through the features of these children's faces. They were seeing Christ in Amman, Jordan, in a refugee camp. Tied to this ministry of noticing, it's related, is a ministry of expecting. I think we're called to have a ministry of noticing and a ministry of expecting. It goes a little bit further than just having the discipline to keep looking. That takes a lot of discipline to keep looking, especially when you pull up to a, a stoplight and your kids start asking questions about, why is that man so hot right there? It takes a lot of discipline to answer those questions and look people in the eyes. But a ministry of expecting also, it doesn't just keep your eyes peeled, but it starts to tell the time and it starts to tell the story. To expect well means to expect a really tumultuous turning in the story. Up and down, first and last, switch places, mountains are leveled and valleys are brought up, proud are scattered like babble, and the meek are given the microphone, the hungry are filled and the rich are sent away empty. Israel is remembered. The children of Abraham are given a place of joy and rest. It seems like Jesus was simply just singing the subversive lullaby that his mom whispered in his ear when he was a baby, this Magnificat from earlier in Luke. So blame Mary <laughs> if this crazy idea of the not yet breaking into the now keeps showing up in Jesus' life and ministry and also the way he calls us. This is an unsettling reality check for us because it means that God actually might take sides. We think of that God is really nice and is impartial, but God actually has sided with the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, and the closest to death, period. Like There is such thing as a divine preferential option for the poor, full stop. I remember... Um, being bothered by this, or this was a new thought, and it shouldn't be a new thought because it's chalked through the whole Bible and God's story, but I was, I remember reading in a cafe um, late in college and getting messed up by this book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger by Ronald Sider. Has anyone heard of that book? Yeah, yeah, it really messed me up, and uh, like he said things like, like this quote, he says, God's word 
teaches a very hard and disturbing truth. Those who neglect the poor and the oppressed are really not God's people at all. No matter how frequently they practice their religious rituals, nor how orthodox their creeds and confessions. Jeez, Ron, lay off, right? I think that that starts to unwind all these, all these thoughts and all these possibilities and, and starts to, to throw weight um, in different places as we consider things. And I, I just started listing things that, that must then be true if, if that is true. And I came up with just 10, and I, I had to stop for time. But um, things in our relationships when we encounter people of great need. First off, um, to, I guess, a lesser extent, they need you, the poor, the, the hurting, they need you. But second off, more importantly, if this is true, you need them. <laughs> Third thing, they are you, <laughs> the, the poor, the hurting. Maybe more importantly, you are them. You, too, are poor and hurting and struggling in some way, even if you cover it up. <laughs> Number five, I said, you can be Jesus to them. Number six, they are Jesus to you, right? You can see kind of how this is going. Number seven, um, their presence, the poor, the hurting, those struggling, their presence is a threat. It's a, but not in the way we normally say that or the way we normally feel that, the, the way we normally feel nervous. Their presence is a threat because it challenges the way things are and helps us look towards the way they should be. Their presence is also a gift. It reveals the way things really are. And their presence is a promise. It includes us in this kingdom coming on earth as it is in, in heaven. And the last thing I listed was that with, if all this is true, with is a greater preposition than for. For is good, but with is better. Because if these people are evincing Jesus to us, we want to be with them, not just for them. This is kind of a flashback to the parable of the unfaithful steward that we read a couple weeks ago. Because there's this massive reversal coming. And so it, may, it, it actually makes making friends with the indebted a good idea. Like that was Jesus' like surprise ending of that story. This guy um, was about to get fired and he canceled all this debt because he wanted people to like him. That's, that's kind of an implication here of if the poor are really going to be the ones on top and in charge, we should make friends with the poor now. Uh, I also uh, think of, of the life and the, the words and the work of Dorothy Day. And there's this great um, icon, Bethy, uh, I think it's the next one, yeah. Notice who has the halo in this icon, right? And Dorothy Day says the mystery of the poor is this, that they are Jesus. And what you do for them, you do for him. It is the only way you have of knowing and believing in our love. The mystery of poverty is that by sharing it, making ourselves poor and giving to others, we increase our knowledge of and belief in love. Again, blame Mary <laughs> for the fact that Jesus had an expectation for reversal, for death, becoming life. We might call this the final ministry that I, that I uh, wrote down for this, the ministry of hoping. The ministry of noticing. We have 
a ministry of expecting and we have a ministry of hoping. And a ministry of hoping is a little different than a ministry of expecting because primarily hope is closely tied to resurrection. Raising from the dead. First, Jesus' resurrection and then our resurrection and also the renewal of all things. Because just how the younger son in the prodigal story mistook death and life, I think that's a big part of what that story is about is resurrection. He, he wished his father dead and took his inheritance, went into the far country and lived this life that was not actually really life. So too, the rich man in Jesus' story mistakes life and death. It says, the death of both men then becomes the revelation of what it actually means to live. It's only when they die that reality manifests to, to them. The more upsetting part of the story, upsetting but not sad, is that warnings won't work for this. Did you notice that at the end? That the rich man says, well, at least go back and tell everyone they need to know about this. They'll listen to a dead man that's come back. Again, this is very Dickensian, right? But dead persons don't come to life because they've thought it through. In fact, dead ones only become alive ones because they've been made alive by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God. They've been remade into daughters and sons. They become party goers and party planners, like that story of the prodigal. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and have lives and imaginations transformed to see what God is up to in the low, the weak, the meek, the poor, and the pitiful. They've seen the living God who shows up in these normal places and among these normal people. Instead of the sad fact of the story that uh, neither can cross from there to us or from us to you, it seems so final. Instead, one has already crossed over to us, has taken on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That's what John 1 says. This one was born to an unwed refugee teenager and sought sanctuary from a violent regime. This, this one that crossed over lived some three decades of obscurity. If you feel like no one's recognizing you for your awesome work, we don't know anything about the first part of Jesus' life. We don't know anything about most of Jesus' life. Like that time when he was learning God from his mom in the temple and he was learning work from his blue-collar dad. Can you imagine that? 30 or so years of not fit to mention normality before altering the whole logic of sin and death and changing the whole course of the life of the world to come. <laughs> this must mean that ordinary is important. That normal is infused with possibility and grace and enchantment. That the poor stranger might actually be an angel. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. When someone knocks on your door, open it up because you might be entertaining angels without even knowing it. That beggars might be brothers, and you didn't even know it. That those lost might become found, and that those who were once dead might live. That's what this whole story, that's what each of these stories is about, and they build up and add on to each other to create this whole ecosystem, this whole textured reality of life through and after death that won't stop, eternal life. So instead of hopelessness, Jesus' story provides this emphatic affirmation, like an exclamation point on Psalm 9 that we sang earlier. 
the poor won't be forgotten forever. The hope of those who suffer won't be lost for all time. I'll say it again. The poor won't be forgotten forever. The hope of those who suffer won't be lost for all time. This is truly good news. Will you pray with me? Lord, you have not forgotten the poor. Even when we've forgotten the poor, you haven't forgotten the poor. When we've been poor, you haven't forgotten us. Lord, give us a spirit of poverty because blessed are the poor for theirs is your kingdom. Lord, for those who are suffering, their hope won't be lost for all time. Even though the way things are seems irreversible and unending, you have a reversal planned. You are looking out for them. You are looking out for us. Let us join with you. Forgive us for the ways that we uh, push against your work and include us in this coming kingdom. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.